Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guests today have extensive backgrounds in academia, history, politics, communications, and journalism. Both are on the faculty of Belmont University, where the third and final presidential debate is scheduled to be held. Our first guest is an author, historian, digital humanist, and academic entrepreneur who serves as an assistant professor at Belmont University. Dr. Pethel is widely published. Her latest book is Athens of the New South, and she's currently working on a manuscript celebrating the 50th anniversary of Title IX. She teaches courses such as Making the Modern City, which inspired the historical walking tour app, NashvilleSites.org. She also teaches a course called The Good Life and Democracy, Media, and the Public Sphere. Also joining us is Jen Duck, Emmy Award-winning producer and instructor of journalism in the Department of Cinema, Media, and Television. Prior to her work with Belmont, Jen was a producer for CNN's Anderson Cooper 360 and Katie Couric's syndicated show in New York. Additionally, she worked for Oprah Winfrey Network in Los Angeles. Jen began her career at ABC News in Washington, D.C., and traveled around the world aboard Air Force One as White House producer covering President George W. Bush and reported from the campaign trail as President Barack Obama and Senator John McCain canvassed the country in 2008. Jen has been a consultant for Words Matter on and off since our launch in August of 2018. Mary Ellen Pethel and Jennifer Duck, welcome to Words Matter. Thank you. So good to be here. Thank you so much. All right. Since there was so much news last week and so much to talk about today, I'm going to frame our discussion a little bit at the outset. A couple of weeks ago, we had legendary political strategist Paul Begala on the show. And for those who don't know, as chief strategist for Bill Clinton's 1992 presidential campaign, Paul was the author of one of the most famous, if not the most famous, political campaign slogans in American history. It's the economy, stupid. And here's what Paul said about the 2020 election. But so here's, to me, what the election comes down to. College-educated white women. I, I tend to be too much of a reductionist, okay? But that's, it's college-educated white women, stupid. So Mary Ellen and Jen, in addition to both being college-educated white women, you spend most of your time educating students, a majority of whom are in that very group. So every day you interact with about 200 students total of that key demographic. So Jen, let's start with you and last week's presidential debate. You oftentimes refer to students as your unofficial focus group. What did you learn from them? They really are a great kind of cross-section of the country, right? We get them from every state. They're first-time voters, and they're in that demographic you're talking about. But having been a part of focus groups for TV news for quite a while, I kind of feel like we as teachers are in that unique situation in terms of talking to these college-aged voters. We've been talking about the election all semester. There's that trust there, you know, with your teacher. And they also don't have to play to the cameras. So there's that that genuine 
honesty that comes out that sometimes as a producer, I wouldn't see when we were just dipping into Ohio or dipping into Georgia to try to talk to people. And for a lot of students, you know, this was the first debate they'd ever watched in full or maybe first debate they ever saw. And they use words like chaotic and uncomfortable. And I think that's not surprising as many people said that about the first presidential debate. But they also said it was very memeable. And we can talk right. about more of it in that in, in terms of how memes are spreading on social media. It's one of the biggest ways that people are getting their quote unquote news. And we know memes are not reliable forms of news. So this can be very dangerous. But they they talked about how memeable this debate was, and it was hard to parse out any policy. It was hard to understand what was going on and what the candidates stood for. I can pick up on that. So Jen and I are teaching this class, Democracy, Media, and the Public Sphere, and we've had a blast doing it, but we're learning so much not only from each other, but from the students. And so we assigned the debate for them to watch, of course, and we had them come in and we did an exercise called three, two, one. They had to come up with three takeaways, two standout moments, and then a question that was either unanswered or something that they felt like was not addressed in the debate. When you normally assign a debate for students or really for anyone, the the typical response is that it was long, it was wonky, it was dry, there was a lot of information, and not this time. In class, none of our students described the first debate that way. And Jen mentioned a few of the things. They said words like stressful, aggressive, negative, partisan. But those three takeaways, they started asking if their takeaways had to be about policy. And that's when we realized how little policy they had gotten out of the debate. And so we said no. And some of the takeaways that they had were lack of talking about the issues. The Green New Deal was something that came up. Football came up as a, I don't know if it's a policy issue, but as a takeaway, the usefulness of debates in their current form. They also talked about jobs, the role of COVID-19, Biden looking at the camera, the fact that they were really looking forward to the vice presidential debate, and also that they thought that this debate was going to be really great for SNL. (laughs) That's fair enough. We had planned on talking about last week's presidential debate and previewing this week's vice presidential debate, but as so often happens in the news business, particularly in the last month of a presidential campaign, our plans were overtaken by events. So President Trump's COVID-19 diagnosis puts the vice presidential debate in doubt. It certainly highlights the importance of the vice presidency itself. So let's talk a little bit about the history of presidential running mates and how a sitting president diagnosed with a life-threatening illness one month before the election changes the political landscape. And Marianne, I want to lean on your historical knowledge here, particularly of the 25th Amendment, to kind of give us some context and, and better understanding of the landscape that we're on right now. Sure, I'd love to. You can actually date this issue back to 1841 when William Henry Harrison died a month after becoming president, succeeded by Vice President John Tyler. But in the modern era, this really started with Eisenhower. Many people believe that it started with FDR because of his health issues and running for a third and then a fourth term. But it was really Eisenhower and living during a Cold War era that people started to question the clarity of succession in Article Two of the Constitution. So there was an effort under Eisenhower, especially after he underwent heart surgery and had a stroke, 
to pass something that attempted to amend the Constitution to clear up all the succession matters and to add a procedure for dealing with a leader who became unable to perform the office's duties temporarily or permanently. And so this was a big issue because of the Cold War and President Dwight Eisenhower's health issues. However, the issue wasn't settled. It wasn't passed in Congress. And then in 1960, after the election of JFK, everyone seemed to breathe a little bit of a sigh of relief because JFK was much younger. Many people didn't know how poor his health actually was. And then, of course, JFK was assassinated. And so Lyndon Johnson, along with Senator Estes Kefauver, helped to set up the amendment that would describe and explain and set up a procedure for the 25th Amendment. The amendment came up for a vote in Congress in 1965. It was passed by both houses, then it went out to the states. And in July 1965, Nebraska became the first state to ratify the amendment. Minnesota became the 37th, and Nevada was the 38th, which hit the three-fourths requirement needed to add a constitutional amendment. And Section 1 of the 25th Amendment makes it clear that the vice president becomes president when the presidency becomes vacant under three circumstances, death, resignation, and removal from office. Section 2 is going to give the president the power to name a new vice president if that office becomes vacant with the permission of Congress. And then the amendment's other two sections detail the process for the vice president to serve as an acting president and how to resolve disputes about the president's ability to discharge official powers. So this has been tested even since we've gotten the 25th Amendment. The first test was October 1973 with Vice President Spiro Agnew. When he resigned, Gerald Ford became the new vice president in December 1973. And then Ford himself is going to invoke the 25th Amendment nine months later when he nominated Nelson Rockefeller as the vice president after Nixon's resignation. And then in more recent times, the two most notable being when Ronald Reagan was undergoing heart surgery and then when George W. Bush went through two routine colonoscopies. So I think that we're in uncharted territory here, not because we don't have the constitutional provisions and protections, but rather because this is dealing with a potential sustained illness with an unsure outcome. It's interesting that the history goes back to President Eisenhower, because as we all know, while all of this is happening with the president's health and well-being, he also has nominated a Supreme Court justice very shortly before the election. And the last president to do so in such short a time before the election was President Eisenhower with Justice William Brennan in 1956. So another pairing of historical momentous occasions happening at the same time. In my particular sphere of nerdiness, we like to talk about those things. Jen, what are your thoughts? I just keep thinking over and over again, like 2020, uh, there's no October surprise. It's just the 2020 surprise every day. It is just Groundhog Day every day. <laughs> you wake up and it's it's just a whole new news cycle. So from the news perspective, obviously this is a big breaking news more than that. You know, we hope the president is well. It, it is unprecedented in so many reasons. This is something that you could be ill with for a while. But it just it's it's a it's a whole different ballgame with COVID. And it's a whole different ballgame with the 25th Amendment, even though we have this precedent. Going back to this. October surprise. We always have these in elections. I just can't remember a time in the 20 years I've covered politics where I, I just kind of was speechless. 
we're so close to the election at this point. We're dealing with this pandemic. We've just have so much that 2020 keeps throwing at us all. So historically, you know, I just, I think this is definitely one for the record books. We're just wading in this news every day and trying to understand what's next and looking back on history. I think that's why Mary Ellen, especially when we're teaching our class, I, I lean to her a lot. Let's go back and think about these things. And it's important to know the context and understand how to navigate these uncharted waters. Well, as we barrel toward November 3rd, the country will, of course, be making its decision at the top of the ticket, but they're also going to be looking to the number two for both presidential candidates who are well into their 70s. So that brings us to Senator Kamala Harris. And even before last week's focus on presidential health generally, given that Joe Biden is 77 years old, Senator Harris was already in the spotlight. She's only the third woman to be selected as the running mate for a major party candidate. We had Geraldine Ferraro in 1984 and Sarah Palin in 2008. Jen, you covered Governor Palin when she ran with Senator John McCain. Talk about the different standard that Senator Harris will be held to, not just as a woman, but as a black woman. I remember when Governor Palin was announced as John McCain's running mate and all the the best political brains from the networks, from all the news outlets were, were calling her Pollen. They didn't know she was even on the shortlist. They didn't know how to pronounce her last name. It was really interesting. But if you go back to even what Governor Palin said at the time when she was running, she said, quote unquote, heck yeah, women face so much more scrutiny than men. And that has been true dating back to Geraldine Ferraro and beyond. And I want to have Mary Ellen weigh in on that. But in terms of media and how women are portrayed in media. There's something really interesting that I've dug into in my research. Every time you search these candidates who are running for higher office, the word shrill comes up. And it's in every article. And there's a really interesting professor from Berkeley who's studied this, and he's written about sound technologies. So starting with the gramophone and phonograph, they were developed for men's voices. They actually distort women's voices. So that shrill tone does not get any help from the technologies we use, but also this is part of how women are painted because our voices are so different. And it's really interesting to take into context. So that's just women. Then you bring in Senator Harris and you have a lot of the stereotypes apply to black women, which are just wrong. So she has that to contend with. And we saw that too, when I was covering 2016, Secretary Clinton had a lot to contend with. And it doesn't matter which party you are, Governor Palin, Secretary Clinton, it's just at times a different ballgame. Mary Ellen, you've studied female candidates for both the presidency and the vice presidency. So give us a little historical perspective on women running for the nation's highest offices. So women candidates in U.S. history actually goes back to a time when women couldn't even vote. And I do just have to say for the record, Jen referenced 2020. Many people are now calling 2020, it's a verb that just means everything bad. But the the coincidence that we're also celebrating, one of the lights of 2020 is that we're celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. And so the first two women who actually ran for president ran for president before women could even vote. 
And I just have to give them a shout out because they're so often forgotten in history. But it was Victoria Woodhull who ran in 1872 with a third party called the Equal Rights Party. She ran against Ulysses S. Grant and Horace Greeley. And then Belva Lockwood, who ran in 1884 and 1888. Interestingly, and we've had the Supreme Court come up in this conversation. So a good fun fact about her, she not only founded her own newspaper and started her own investment firm, but she helped to draft a law that passed in Congress that allowed women to argue before the Supreme Court. And she was, in fact, the first woman to argue in front of the Supreme Court in the 1880s. So I have to just briefly mention those two. But as far as the first major party candidate, that's going to be Margaret Chase Smith, who ran for the Republican nomination. She was first elected to the House in 1940, and that was to fill the vacancy that had been caused by her husband's death. And quite frankly, early in politics, that's how most women got into politics, to an elected seat. They they basically served out the term or ran for a term after their husband had passed away. So she was elected in 1940 to fill the seat caused by her husband's death. And then she became then the first woman to win outright on her own a Senate seat in Maine in 1948. And she would go on to win four consecutive Senate terms. But she most famously, in addition to running for president, is that she wrote in 1950 the Declaration of Conscience. And she was one of the few Republicans who stood up to McCarthy and to the trials surrounding communism and McCarthyism in the 1950s. And in the Declaration of Conscience, she had a great quote, I speak as a Republican, I speak as a woman, I speak as a United States senator, and I speak as an American. And the rest of the document which she read on the congressional floor was describing how that Republicans needed to stand up against Joe McCarthy and that they needed to declare a conscience. You know, history never repeats itself. I always tell students, no event is ever exactly like another, but historical patterns do repeat themselves. And I think if you go back and look at her document, you'll, you'll see how many of those same issues we're still fighting today. But she runs for the presidency in 1964. We've also mentioned JFK in this podcast. The last press conference that JFK did before a week before he went to Dallas, where he was assassinated, he was asked a question about the candidacy of Margaret Chase Smith. And the press pool kind of chuckled because of her candidacy. And he actually responded that she was a very formidable political figure, and he did not envy any Republican that was going to have to run against her for the nomination, nor run against her for the presidency. Let's listen to President Kennedy. As a possible candidate for president, would you comment on the possible candidacy of uh, Margaret Chase Smith, and, uh, and specifically what effect that would have on the New Hampshire primary? I would think, as if I were a Republican candidate, I would not look forward to campaigning against Margaret Chase Smith in New Hampshire. <laughs> or as a possible candidate for president, I think she's very formidable, if that's the appropriate word to use about a very fine lady. She's a very formidable political figure. So I always find that heartening that one of the last things JFK said publicly was to validate, really, the uh, Margaret Chase Smith running for president. And then I'll briefly touch on another figure. The second woman that I'd like to highlight is Shirley Anita Chisholm, 
who ran for president in 1972. She was the first African-American to run for a major party. In this case, it was the Democrats. Margaret Chase Smith had done it for the Republicans. She was from Brooklyn. She was the first African-American woman in Congress from 1969 and served until 1983. And she has a lot of famous quotes, but probably the most famous is, if they don't give you a seat at the table, bring a folding chair. Let's listen to Shirley Chisholm. There's so many things in the Congress I would like to change. I think the thing that I'd like to change more than anything else is the seniority system. The destiny of this country, which is primarily a young country, primarily peopled by younger people as a whole, is in the hands of about 15 men. 90% of them are from the South. The country is ruled by a group of old men that make up the Southern oligarchy. That's why this country is as as it is. She obviously does not win the nomination, but Chisholm and Chase both show real trailblazers of women who are willing to put themselves on the line and are willing to inject themselves to a lot of scrutiny in the public sphere. Margaret Chase Smith was also the first woman to appear on Meet the Press, along with Eleanor Roosevelt in 1958. So these two women were incredible. And I'll just end with this, that we have had 23 women run for the presidency. And out of those 23, 13 of them ran between 1872 and 2012. And several of those were third parties. 10 of those women have run for president since 2016. So 13 women total from 1872 uh, to 2012, and then 10 women running in 2016 and 2020. So I certainly think the future is female if you're looking at that trend. Yeah, really interesting. Just something from when I was covering the 2018 midterms, a lot of the women, the new members of Congress that were coming in were posing next to that Chisholm portrait in Capitol Hill. When you think about really paving the way, Chisholm did that and is still very much remembered on Capitol Hill to this day. Right. Hopefully transitions from folding chairs to full-on regular chairs at the table as we progress. (laughs) But so we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. How, Mary Ellen, for you, how have women changed politics both as voters and candidates? Well, that's a great question. When the when the suffrage debate was going on, it all came down to Tennessee. This is a story that I tell quite often being here in Nashville, Tennessee. And I know we mentioned this in the introductions, but the, the digital walking programs that I app that I have, NashvilleSites.org, we have a woman's suffrage tour. And so I'm very familiar with this story. And so it all came down to Tennessee. And if you look at that as a case study, it really highlights a lot of things more nationally. And that was that they, the people who were against suffrage called the antis believed that women were going to push social reform too far to make child labor illegal, to be very involved in labor issues, and then also issues related to alcohol and drugs. And so you had this fight in Tennessee and it ultimately passed making Tennessee the state that pushed the 19th Amendment across the finish line. And Tennessee is known as the perfect 36, and that notion of the perfect 36 is meant to say the 36th state that ratified the amendment, therefore making it a constitutional amendment, 
But there's a double entendre there because the perfect 36 was also the shape and the size of the ideal American woman. And so I give that example just as that as active as women are, oftentimes they have to operate in a different way, both as voters and as candidates. And Jen touched on this a little bit earlier. But I do think that women as voters have become an increasingly powerful voting block. If you look now at the election, the big group that everyone is talking about are suburban women, which tend to be college-educated white women. So politicians have to address issues that are important to women, which still involve many times social issues that go all the way back to the ratification fight. So then as candidates, you know, we've seen what they called uh, the year of the woman in the 1990s. And then I certainly think you could look at the 2018 midterms, both for Republicans and for Democrats. I know in Tennessee that Marsha Blackburn was the first female senator. So it really is on both sides of the aisle. Women are playing an increasingly large role, both as voters and as fundraisers, as activists, as door knockers. And then many of them are deciding that if they want to see change, they have to be that change in running for office themselves. So let's circle back to the beginning of the conversation, to your focus group of Gen Z voters. Jen mentioned a lot of them are first-time voters, mostly women, that you both interact with every day. COVID has upended almost every aspect of American life. What are the effects of the pandemic on first-time voters? What are they thinking about? What are they talking about? Mary Ellen? They're worried. The thing about college students, and particularly here at Belmont University, is that they're conscientious. They are active citizens. They want to, to do their part, and they're engaged very much so for 18 to 22-year-olds, but many of them are living out of state. And so the issues involved with absentee, requesting absentee ballots, casting mail-in ballots, some of the dispersions that have been cast about the mail-in system, many of them are just left wondering if they're doing the right thing and what that right thing is. Jen? I had a student just admit in front of the whole class, I, I cried after watching the debate. That's what the students said, especially watching that that debate. And that's your first time really interacting so deeply with politics. It's, it's hard with any debate. Usually it's, it's very policy heavy. And usually debates are to the point where they're so wonky, you can't follow along, where this one was so chaotic, you couldn't follow along. But they're really concerned. And I think that a lot that came up is, is this two-party system going to be around forever? Is this what we have. They had a lot of just interesting, of course, we teach this class called Democracy, Media, and the Public Sphere. So we talk a lot about democracy, but they also have a lot of concerns with media and how on social media, what they're reading, what trends, how do they know what's a good source? And clearly they learn that in these classes, but coming into it, they don't know something like RT formerly known as Russian television, that is Russian government propaganda that is posing as a news station. That's where I think people are struggling. And then you have a debate that was thrown in that wasn't really laying out the policies. They were very disappointed in that. And I don't think we give the Gen Zers enough credit. They 
want that and they see that there's a problem and they see where we're heading. I get a ton of questions like, how do you talk to someone who is spreading misinformation online? How do you try to correct them? We have a lot of those conversations in class, how to correct and fact check and do it in a way that will be effective. And those are hard conversations, but really, really important conversations. They really want to go there. And they oftentimes want to correct parents or relatives or how do I talk to them about this and tell them like, this is just not true. So they, they have a lot of concerns, but I think they really do always harken back to how can we have civil conversations and fact check and make sure the truth is getting out there and not all this infodemic, this information just flooding our social media feeds, flooding our news feeds. How do we do that? One of the things that Jen has done so well and that I have really benefited from in teaching this class is her talking to them about the role of media as gatekeepers and just that topic of who who is fact-checking, who is distributing information. And one of the things that I think the students struggle with the most, and Jen touched on this, is understanding the role of social media companies and the fact that they're putting out traditional news stories, but they're not gatekeeping in any way. And so the news comes at them horizontally. It's not like a newspaper where you've got a front page story and an op-ed on page six. Everything's coming into their news feed horizontally, and they're having a hard time shuffling it and putting it into an order that where they know what they can trust and what they know is opinion. And we don't see it that same way because we do understand the hierarchy of news and information. But for them, they have always gotten their news from a phone and from so increasingly social media. And so I think that that's, it's a huge challenge for them and for us, but they're going to tackle it. I think they're going to figure out how to, how to decode the social media information world. I 100% agree too. Like the gatekeeping role, I think, you know, one thing as a journalist and someone who worked in the field for so long and has passion for truth seeking is sometimes journalists don't explain what we do, the ethics we abide by, and how this goes through many channels, how a story just isn't typed out and then printed right away in these reputable news organizations. Obviously, we saw the disruption in 2016 with disinformation, with bots and trolls. But even with Aunt Betty over spreading on Facebook some misinformation, and that goes viral, it's a real problem. Yeah, it's interesting because baked in our constitution and our laws is protection for speech and protection for the press and for publications. And those have actually gotten extended to these social media giants, and they are afforded and enjoy a lot of protection as a, quote, publisher. To Mary Ellen's point, though, they they don't really have a filter and everything comes through. And the law is now having to grapple with treating these social media entities as a publisher and providing them those protections where they don't necessarily fit in that in that mold and maybe don't even necessarily deserve the full suite of protections that are available to those news organizations like Jen was talking about that build an infrastructure of information and truth safety before it gets to the public. So I think that'll be something to keep an eye on in the coming months as as either this administration or a new administration has to tackle that. In that vein, as our listeners know, my current focus is law and politics and the Supreme Court. And it's been an insane two weeks. 
but it's hard to believe that we lost Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg just a couple of weeks ago. And I wanted to get your thoughts and perhaps your students' thoughts on her passing. So with the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I think it was one of those moments that many of us will always remember where we were when we heard the news. We all have those moments. I think, you know, 9-11 is another one. Where were you when you first found out? And I think for many people, the passing of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is going to have that kind of effect on them. You know, she was the second woman appointed to the Supreme Court. Sandra Day O'Connor was appointed first, and both served long and storied careers. But I think it is the dissenting opinions that really set Ruth Bader Ginsburg apart, in addition to the issues that she was passionate about and also the length of her tenure on the court. And so we use a Slack channel in class to to have different conversations. It's like a group message board. And so we put RGB reflections on our Slack channel. And there were so many interesting points that were made. Some talked about how she was a hero and a role model. People on the other side of the aisle, perhaps, or just people who were looking at her life more broadly, talked about her friendship with Justice Scalia as being something that they wish they saw more of today. They talked about some of the conversations and interviews that she had done in both books and with Nina Totenberg. They talked about her legacy and contributions to women's rights, but some did also point out the effects of many of these decisions affected white women more significantly than black women. And just her deep love and connection to equal justice under the law. And so I think for students that her loss and then seeing in a polarized world this new nomination process, along with COVID, along with racial unrest, uh, along with so many other things, economic collapse, it just, it, it all feels quite disjointed. It all feels very unsettling. And I think many of us feel that as adults, and I think the students feel that as well. But I will say that there is a lot of hope and determination in the Gen Z, and I think they're going to figure it out, and I think that they are ready for a chance to make their voices heard and to participate in the political process and to be part of the solution. I'll just add on to that. One of our students said, from a young age, I knew of RBG and Scalia's friendship. Despite their ideological differences, I was completely inspired and refreshed to know about their close friendship, especially since I imagine it would be very difficult to separate political beliefs from people and fellow justices in a job as political and as demanding as the Supreme Court. So that was from one of our students. And we talked about that friendship with Scalia and RBG. And again, it came back to that civility. We can have different opinions, but we can learn from each other. We can be civil. We can say, hey, I see where you're coming from, and I may not agree, but I'll hear you out if you hear me out. And I think that's where college students give you a lot of hope. You don't run into much of the ugly discourse. You have a lot of the civil discourse and they see it, they recognize it, and they want the civil discourse. They want civility back in politics. And finally, Mary Ellen, you spend a lot of your time thinking, writing, teaching about leadership. Given President Trump's COVID diagnosis, how do you think his leadership 
during the pandemic plays into the last month of the campaign? And does his COVID diagnosis change the perception of voters? In addition to the class that Jen and I teach, I teach a an intro to global leadership studies class. And we read a wide range of, of books and articles. It's an interdisciplinary class. But one of the history books that we read is Doris Kearns Goodwin's Leadership in Turbulent Times. And we have recently finished that, and she focuses on two Republican presidents and two Democratic presidents. She starts with Lincoln and then Theodore Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, and then Lyndon B. Johnson. And in reading and discussing that book, I feel like it really is a a blueprint for how we should act and how we should move forward and how politicians should act and move forward, frankly. She has one chapter dedicated to adversity and what adversity they encountered, how they overcame it, and how they learned from it. And in reading those, I feel like you could apply that to not just the executive branch, but to congressional leaders as well, and also on the state and local level. And that is that all of those presidents emerged as better people on the other side of their adversity because they were honest and clear communicators. They were willing to learn from their mistakes and they were resilient. They were hardworking, they were resilient, and they had a never give up attitude. And I feel like that while none of those four men were perfect, and for that matter, none of us are, period, but we can learn a lot from their examples. And they didn't do everything right. And there are a lot of things that we could disagree with them on in terms of their policy and some of the things that they implemented, but they all shared those fundamental characteristics and it made them better in the end. And Jen, you covered the 2008 campaign when Senator McCain suspended his campaign in the wake of the financial crisis. Whether formally suspended or not, last week's news at least temporarily froze this campaign. Talk a little bit about that and what voters can expect over the next few days and weeks. Yeah, well, when McCain suspended his campaign, it was because of the economy. So it was out of respect for that time. Let's listen to Senator McCain. Tomorrow morning... I'll suspend my campaign and return to Washington after speaking at the Clinton Global Initiative. I've spoken to Senator Obama and informed him of my decision, and I've asked him to join me. I'm calling on the president to convene a leadership meeting from both houses of Congress, including Senator Obama and myself. It's time for both parties to come together to solve this problem. We must meet as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, and we must meet until this crisis is resolved. I think there is precedent for this in some senses, but also it's that we're dealing with COVID. And with COVID, there's just so many unknowns. We don't know how this virus, it it affects people differently. And we don't know, like, how this will affect each person. Some people have very mild symptoms. I can tell you I had a virus 
in 2018 going into 2019 that hit me that actually is being compared in academic journals to COVID. And it hit me for some reason super hard, whereas it usually doesn't hit people that hard. So we're just dealing with so many unknowns. I don't even know that I could compare it to a campaign I covered because this virus is just so unpredictable. Mary Ellen? So if you're looking for a a historical context here, probably the closest comparison would be the 1912 election with William Howard Taft, Woodrow Wilson, and Theodore Roosevelt. And it's important to remember that Teddy Roosevelt had already been president, served out McKinley's term, won his own term, and then stepped away and pretty much handpicked Taft to be his successor. But then he decided he didn't like what Taft was doing, so he ran after he failed to capture the Republican nomination, he ran as a third-party candidate with the Progressive Party. And so it wasn't his first run for president. It was kind of towards the end of his career. And so he's running in 1912, this three-horse race, and he's a viable third-party candidate. And he's given a campaign speech, and she's shot. You know, the urban legend is that he had a lot of papers in his pocket, and that helped to soften the blow of the bullet. But he ended up going in and having surgery to remove the bullet. And so in the ensuing weeks, Taft and Wilson both suspended their campaigns until Theodore Roosevelt was out of the hospital. Just one more thing that I would add is that modern campaigning is so different than it was even 75, 100 years ago. Just the travel schedules that politicians have now when they're campaigning The fact that now it's all about how many people you can draw into an arena. Politicians used to do a lot more retail politics, whistle-stop tours, they'd knock on doors. And so I think the fact that you have the pandemic and now President Trump has been diagnosed with COVID in this age where campaigning is so different, it just, as Jen said, it just doesn't really have a historical comparison. All right. Well, we've taken up so much of your time and thank you for being generous with it and for bringing us into your classrooms and sharing so much knowledge with us, Jen and Mary Ellen. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks, Katie. This was fun. Honored to have been here. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. 